0: Welcome to another episode of The Rental Journal podcast, a podcast dedicated to the equipment rental industry. I'm your host, Mark Simonson, and today's guest is Bruce Fouracre. Now Bruce has over 25 years experience in the equipment rental industry. He was a director at one Temp Fence, and was actually one of the original founders that have helped actually grow this company from being a small family-owned organization to now a national, temporary fencing and site solutions company. So I'm very excited to talk to Bruce about how he went through that journey, some of the challenges he's faced and how he's really helped grow this organization into one of the leading rental suppliers in Australia. Bruce, thank you for coming on the podcast today. To kick things off, can you talk to me about how you got into the equipment rental industry?
1: My brother, Martin, and our mate of ours, Mark, in the mid nineties were considering starting a business, those guys were, um, were working sort of in corporate stuff. My brother was at NAB, National Australia Bank, and Mark was at um, Telstra, and they wanted to do something on their own. And I was just working in a pretty poorly paid, oh, go-nowhere job sort of working for a paper company. And um, so we decided to have a crack at it, and we, uh, we bought a bin hire company. Um, in the northwestern suburbs of Melbourne. Had one dodgy old truck and 13 bins. So we put in 30 grand each, got into that, started up in bin hire, running around the the northwestern suburbs of Melbourne. We built it up over a few years. We got up to four trucks and about 100 bins after about six or seven years. Had some sort of subby truck drivers and things like that. And then, as we were doing that, we, uh, we ran that business. You know, we were doing pretty well. We had a sort of a recycling setup and all that going. But as we, we were doing that business, we realised that um, it was quiet in the, the, uh, the winter months in Melbourne. We were sort of reliant on, we weren't really dealing with the big commercial space. We we're dealing with uh, residential builders and probably just uh, mums and dads. And in the winters, it was quiet and we we're looking for something else to do. And so we got, we saw temporary fencing going up around the place and thought we might have a go at that. We ran the two concurrently for a little while, so bin hire and temporary fencing. After a while, we realised that the bin hire was hard work and the temporary fencing was making more money. And so um, we were very lucky that a multinational called Trans-Pacific were going around buying up a heap of, temporary fence, a heap of bin hire companies at that time. This is about uh, 2000, 1999, something like that. Maybe. Oh, no, a little bit later, 2002, I think. Yeah, they were going around buying up bin hire companies. So we sold and um, then we just concentrated on temporary fencing, which was probably the best move we ever made.
0: So what was the name of the original bin hire company?
1: The bin hire, originally when we bought it, it was called A Above Average Bin Hire. So they had as many A's in the name as they could because that's how you got to the front of the yellow pages in those days. But we changed the name to Ready Bin. And, um, and we yeah we ran it as ready bin around
0: uh, around Melbourne. And you said you ran the two businesses, the bin hire and the temporary fencing concurrently. Was the fencing company a different name again?
1: The temporary fencing had a different name. Originally, it was called Zone Temporary Fencing. And what we would do, we would um, deliver the temporary fencing to site in the back of the bins. So, um, yeah, I was a bin truck driver and I was, yeah, rocking up to site and I drop the bin on the ground and then grab all the temporary fencing out and set it up on
0: site, pick the bin up and drive away. I assume your delivery mechanisms have improved a lot since then. So what was the evolution to eventually come to the name of 1-300 Temp Fence then?
1: Uh, yeah, we went from zone fencing to we then we had ready bin then we had ready fence. So... We operated Ready Fence in Melbourne. There was already another Ready Fence in Queensland. Um, so we, we couldn't have encroached into that area at that point. Um, and then we started to see the, the, um, the phone words becoming popular and realized if we wanted to expand the business, um, we weren't gonna be able to operate as Ready Fence interstate, so we should change the name. And so we took the phone word option to one 300 Fence. And uh, yeah, that was that was how the, that part of it evolved. I guess um, the temporary fencing. Yeah, we just we were uh, just feeling our way with it, I suppose. And the rates were really good at that stage. When I mean, it was the early stages of temporary fencing, the rates were really good. So, it was
0: making good money. So we pursued it. And so, if we were to compare the businesses on how the how it's changed, I guess. So what what was the landscape of ready fence and. What's the landscape of 1300 Temp Fence today?
1: We had uh, a yard in Tullamarine. We had a refrigerated shipping container that we worked out of. We had a um, portable toilet and um, we had, so there was bin hire and temporary fence going on, all going on in this yard. There um, There was recycling of the bin hire. So we'd set up a ramp and there was, rubbish being sorted and so this office we were in was like a dust bowl and, uh, and it was all very rugged and uh, rough and, but we just made do and sort of, yeah, just plugged on. And then uh, we moved into, we bought a little office and office warehouse but had the um, where the admin worked out of and the, and the yard stayed and the fence and bins were still around there we operated out of that little warehouse for a while, and then, then we realised we were going to need more space. We, we employed our first rep, I think, around that time. In the, So we probably sold off the bin hire, employed our first rep, Phil Heath, and, um, and he, he helped us to develop. Um, he had, Phil had worked in, in the wine industry, and he had set up a lot of um, distributors and things like that, agencies and distributors. So he um encouraged us to get into that. And so we operated out of our little warehouse with a separate yard. After a while, we had to get bigger premises. We moved into a large office with a big warehouse and things like that. Because Phil was probably not as um not as experienced in hire, but he had great experience in sales. And so the model was that this distributor, this distributor model um, was that the people would operate under the one 10 fence name, but they would have to buy all their product from us, in, for, and in turn we would give them all our lead, all the leads, and have a website presence and provide, um, you know, they had um, proven ISO oh, proven quality product and that sort of thing, and marketing that we did and we um, helped them that way. And so by generating all those sales that we did through that, through that, through that model, um, we were able to have the cash flow to grow our hire business. So uh, yeah, the sales, model, the sales model to those distributors at that point generated a lot of cash or a lot of income, which allowed us to grow our own hire fleet. Yeah, so we'd set these things up in, those, in the states, in the major capitals and a few other places and those people probably did okay for a little while, but they ran out of cash, a lot of them. And so they weren't able to grow the business any further and they stopped basically buying stuff from us. And so we had to look for, for other options, I guess. Yeah, mm. the, the ways to grow those, those areas.
0: So then how did you overcome that challenge? Because it's not really good business to have your distributors going out of business.
1: A couple of the distributors we bought out, we bought their stock from them. And, um, and over time, we moved to an agency model whereby uh, we would provide, we would own all the equipment. We would partner with someone in the area, in an area. And, um, and then we would share the income basically. So in that way, we were both motivated, You know, every meter they got out on the ground, um, we shared the income. And they didn't have the capital expense, which was which was what had curtailed the,
0: the distributor model. So it sounds fairly close to like a franchise sort of model.
1: Yeah, it is close to a franchise model, that model, yeah. So we we had the capacity to uh, put the capex in to buy all the product and keep them stocked up. All they had to do in their area was find the work and get the stuff, you know, delivered and picked up from site. They own their own trucks, they own you know, rented their own yards and all that sort of thing. Yeah, they had to try and find the work and do the actual operational side of it. And we generated leads for them through our website, and you know, internet marketing and that sort of thing. Uh, That all went okay for a few years. And, um, but then again, some of them um, didn't have the money. So they were going to need to employ more people, buy more trucks, get bigger yards, get warehousing and that sort of thing. And some of them couldn't, weren't prepared to do that so then we recognized that we were probably going to have to go to company-owned branches and um, in the capital cities cities especially we wanted to um, maximize the opportunity in those areas yeah bought a couple of agents out some of them just um, went by the wayside but yeah we had to buy a few out and then we set up our own company-owned branches in the areas we had um it just gave us the opportunity to yeah, again, be in charge of our own destiny. Um, if we wanted to spend a lot of money, we could, and you know, maximize the opportunities. It also allowed us to put more sales products into the area. So, in with the agency model and the distributor, with the agency model, sorry, there was because we are a bit unique in temporary fencing and that we hire and sell product. The agency model wasn't terribly the sales. Yeah, in the agency model, sales of product weren't terribly lucrative for the um, for the agent, and they a lot of them felt they were cannibalising their own market if they sold stuff. Whereas we had a different philosophy. I suppose we just want to we'll take um, if somebody wants to buy it or hire it, we're happy to take their money either way. I guess. Yeah, there was a bit of a conflict there. So having company owned branches allowed us to not only grow our hire business, put the capex in and get the get the vehicles and the people but also to grow the sales arm of the business.
0: And so what's the size of the business today? Uh, now
1: we're, um, we've got about a hundred employees. Uh, we're in every capital city except Hobart, I suppose. We do have a presence in Darwin, an agent in Darwin. Um, we're yeah, employing about hundred people. That's excluding the actual guys who do the installations. Most of those are subcontractors. So there might be another, there might be another 80 people, 60 to 80 people who are employed at, um, either a subcontractor or the subcontractors offside. I suppose. Yeah.
0: And so how were the challenges that you faced in the early days different to the challenges that you face today? Yeah,
1: I suppose, Mark, when we started off, it was me and it was a bin hire company, me and a dodgy old truck with a brick phone driving around with a diary trying to write while I was driving and stuff like that. Um, and I suppose it was, it was, um, it was very much operational and just getting the job, just getting things done. Um, probably taking a few chances and risks, you know, that we just had to just had to do it in order to satisfy the customers and keep working. And, um, and, uh, yeah, just to get the job done was was all we could think about basically, um, and I guess uh, we didn't have a massive customer base, and and so it was just um, it was just keeping the customers we had happy, and um, I suppose we built the customer base as we went along, and uh, then we started to employ a few people, and, and then you get challenges around that and learning about that sort of stuff, but really early on it was very basic, so. Um, so, yeah, we got through that, started employing a few people, started employing a few subcontractors in in bin hire and then started moving into temporary fence and, you know, delivering temporary fence in the back of a bin truck, running to site, dropping the bin off the back, pulling the fence out, putting it up. Um, you know, it was a lot more physical. It was a lot more operational uh, in those days. Nowadays, um uh, the biggest challenges now are, I guess, making sure the people and systems that we employ are, are um, capable of handling the growth that we've had to date. And um, and we've got, you know, plans and aims to expand extensively. Um, you know, we'd hope to double the business in the next three to five years. And so it's a bad, it's a matter of having the right people in place, getting the team together, the right team together, and, um, and the, right, um, the right locations, the right uh, uh, properties in those locations, and also the right systems that can cope for that growth. So that's what we're working on now. Um, that's the real challenge. The, the people part of it's probably the major part, just getting the right team together. And we've probably got the best team together now that we've ever had. So. We're, um, we're well poised to, to take the next step, I guess.
0: That's awesome to hear. And I think so many small business owners go through that challenge where they're, they're so used to having control of so many things in the business and they start growing and they've got to employ more people and then it turns into a HR problem. And I think a lot of people forget like the, the definition of, of leadership and being a manager. It's, it's not about, I guess, being in charge it's about taking care of those that are in your charge.
1: Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, we, um,
0: we have learnt
1: a lot about people and the more people you get, the more, um, not problems you get, but there's differing ways that people operate and, um, and it's learning to, um, yeah, keep everyone as engaged as they possibly can be given their own personality, you know, that's... Um, and happy, you know, you want you want people to be happy working for you. They've got to come to work and enjoy it. So, um, yeah, you don't want them too stressed. You don't want them – you still want to challenge them, but you don't want everybody stressed. And, um, and yeah, I want them to be happy coming to work and to enjoy themselves and know that the company's, you know, growing and there's opportunity and all that sort of thing. So – but um, you're never going to get that 100% all the time, I don't think. Uh, but – For me, I guess, employing really good um, management team has helped enormously in managing the people uh, at the coalface, I guess, yeah. So that challenge is is probably allayed by employing good people as managers, yeah.
0: Yeah, and it's really hard to sometimes find those right people because you've got to employ managers that have the same vision as you because as, you grow your business, you're eventually going to start losing more control. And I think that that is also another big challenge that a lot of small businesses go through. Yeah. Control
1: is certainly, um, is certainly an issue when you start to grow and things you, when in the past where you knew everything that was going on and it's no longer the case and things happen and you get a bit, um, uh, why didn't they just ask me? I would have known that I could have told them, you know, that's that sort of stuff. But, yeah it it is about trust in your management team and what they deliver and how they manage their own team um yeah you you, and trust takes a little while to build but um i've found over the years it's better to get good people and um not necessarily the most talented or whatever but if you can find good people with good values and that sort of thing they tend to carry you in the right direction
0: yeah i couldn't agree more on that statement so so how has the products and services that 1-300-Temp Fence provide changed over the past 20 or so years?
1: Yeah, so 1-300-Temp Fence started as a, um, well, we were doing bin hire. We bought some panels and started doing some temporary fence hire. Um, and we went along like that for a few years, um, just buying locally and um, and growing our, our Temp Fence hire fleet that way. Uh, we started to uh, visit it overseas to China and started importing stock. And when we went to China, um, we realised there were, you know, you know, it's a land of opportunity over there. You see so much stuff that you could, if you had the right market, you could bring it back and sell it. It's just about having the right market. So when we, we were doing uh, temporary fencing, we were using pickets to hold the temporary fencing up to help support it realized we could buy them overseas. So we investigated that, started importing pickets. Once we had them here, oh, we can sell them cheaper than Bunnings is selling them or whatever, so we started selling them, which meant we were importing more and more all the time. Shade cloth, similarly. Uh, we, we, were, we were buying shade cloth to screen temporary fencing for events and things like that, um, realized we could buy it overseas. And once we got it here, realized we could sell it as well. Um, so that was good. Um, and then we just kept evolving the temporary fencing products. I guess as, the, as time went on, um, temporary fencing uh, bracing became more prevalent um, with uh, more requirement for wind loading and all that, you know, people wanting to make sure they were catering, catering to wind loading and with more advertising material going on the fencing. So as as people started putting more advertising material on the fencing, we realized we could do printed shade cloth and stuff as well. So we added that onto the the range, Um, printed banners, all that sort of stuff we're doing now, Um, catering to our customers. Needs, I guess, we're trying to be a one-stop shop. Um, Another product that sort of fell in line with our, uh, was a bolt-on, was portable toilets. And we got into the portable toilet market, developed our own toilet, um, predominantly to set up a hire business. And we, we would sell them if they, you know, if people wanted them. But it was predominantly to set up our own hire business. We got that going. Um, it's not huge. We're in every state. Um, we still, you know, have an opportunity to grow that a lot bigger. We probably haven't had anyone concentrate on that business terribly much. It's just been an add-on to the temporary fencing. Um, but it's gone well. But once we got the toilets here and realized we could sell them, um, we went for a premium model for our higher business. We realized that um, that was probably too expensive for the market. We've since um, found other toilets we can sell a bit cheaper. And so we're, we're um, really having a crack at the toilet sales market, which is really going well at the moment with the residential construction boom and that sort of thing. We're um, moving a fair bit of that product. So we've just, as we've gone along, we've seen products that align to what we're doing, you know, for our customers, do you want fries with that? You know, that sort of, that sort of um, uh, yeah, that sort of option for them. So then we um, temporary fencing, you go to a big construction site in the city or something and they've got timber hoarding. So about six years ago, we had to go at timber hoarding externally for um, major construction large commercial sites and that sort of thing. And um, and that's going really well. We've got significant businesses in Melbourne and Sydney now with um, external hoardings. And in Melbourne, um, we're using the Titan hoarding system to do internal hoardings for shopping centres and um, interior fit outs and that sort of thing. So we've got a contract with um, Centre Group or Westfield. We do all the Westfield centres in Melbourne. That's gone really well. And, um, Yeah, our hoarding team has um, really taken off in the last couple of years. We've got some good managers in there, and it's going. Yeah, it's burning now, so that's been really good. Um, More recently, site cameras. um, So the uh, for residential or for construction generally. So they're a wireless camera, solar powered. um, You know, operates on the four G network or whatever. Um, We saw. yeah, ATF got big into it. We thought we'd have a crack at that. Um, that's going pretty well. We've developed it all ourselves, pretty much in house, and um, uh, going well. Um, still more development to go. We want to, you know, keep improving the product and make it make it um, a really good thing for people. It's proved pretty popular so far. And then um, of recent times, probably the last year. Um, We've added water barriers and traffic stuff to the to the range. So again, we're on these civil infrastructure jobs and you know large road projects and that sort of thing where they need um, water barriers. In um, we've just piloted um, VMS boards, arrow boards, and that sort of thing in Perth, with a, a look to roll that out around the country once we um, get it all going. So yeah, we we just want to keep growing the range make ourselves more of a one-stop shop for people. Um, we've certainly developed our sales range of temporary fencing. Initially, you know, we were doing hire and, and selling our higher panel to people, but it's a heavy duty panel designed for you know, multiple years of life. Um, people are, uh, the competitors were a bit smarter than us and made a lightweight panel and, and were selling heaps of them. And we decided that um, we needed to be selling apples for apples because we're losing. So we sell um, an equivalent product to what they're selling and, um, and the sales of temporary fencing has gone crazy too. So um, yeah, it has evolved from, a, from a, you know, a temporary fence hire company to be a, more of a multi-service company, but all within the same realm of customer base, I guess. Yeah.
0: And it sounds like you do quite a bit of R&D in terms of investigating various products that can be innovated is that done internally? Like, who initiates that? Like, how do you work with overseas? Like, it'd be interesting just to learn a little bit more about that.
1: Myself and my brother Martin go to China each year. Um, we go over there. I guess we listen to our team and, and our sales team and find out what sort of products that their customers are asking about or that there's opportunity to, to deliver to our customers. And then um, we'll key up, uh, sorry, tee up some you know, um, factory visits while we're over in China. We'll do a lot of work on Alibaba and that sort of thing and and investigate, you know, a number of factories, find out with the ones that are doing a bit of the stuff we want. Um, we've got, um, in years gone by, we had a, uh, an interpreter that we used to meet in China. Um, she'd meet us wherever we flew in and we'd travel around with her. Now we've got um, our, I guess, um, importing and procurement guy uh, manager Jonathan is Chinese he comes with us he um, he communicates with the factories before we leave so we've done a bit of groundwork on them and then when we get over there we go and visit them um, work out you you get a feel for the people I guess and and the and the look of the factory and if they can produce what you want to produce you go to you might go to five or six factories producing the one product until you find what you want the beauty of it is generally in China they have cities that only specialise in one product so you you can go to one city and visit a number who are all doing the same thing which is quite weird but that's the way they operate yeah Um, and uh, so we do that we yeah I guess we don't do a lot of the pricing doesn't necessarily happen while we're there we just find out when we get back and work it out with them and um, and then yeah just Work out who's the best value out of out of what we've had on you know, what we've been offered.
0: Yeah. Have you seen some big delays in terms of getting shipping from overseas?
1: Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, shipping shipping stuff. Um, I think the suppliers are going alright; they're producing stuff, but they just can't get space on vessels, and there's not enough sh- actual shipping containers over in China. So um, we're uh, we're a bit snooked at the minute. I I think we've probably done better than a lot of our competitors because there's customers. Um, customers who we haven't dealt with for years are buying from us because their regular supply is not there. So we have done all right, but yeah, it's just been, it's been a really, really difficult year. Um, our procurement meetings each week, are it's a bit of a, it's come to a laugh now because you know, stuff you're expecting, there's containers leave one month, you know, they'll leave in November and you don't get them till February or something. And they've just been stuck somewhere for months. And yeah. So, um, it's yeah yeah if you if you didn't laugh you'd cry mate like, so we we you know enjoying it
0: yeah I've heard some horror stories of people that have won projects and committed to delivering on a certain stock uh, whether it be rental or sale and and they can't get it they just they physically can't get the deliveries from overseas and so it's just a, a big challenge that I guess the industry and all all businesses that are importing are uh, going through at the moment. So I want to go back and talk about the agents a little bit because it's quite an interesting concept. Because I don't think many people in rental have agents set up or franchises. So how do you ensure a high level of service uh, is is conducted by these agents?
1: Yeah, um, I guess the first part is to find good people to to be to be the agents. Um, that that's the key, really, and um, and we have. Um, I guess guidelines that we we give those people about service levels. Um, don't get me wrong, we haven't got it right all the time. We've had people, of course, a lot of hassles over the years, and and, um, and you know haven't been a great agent. So I guess nowadays it's about finding the right people and um, you know having constant communication with them. And and I guess we have good systems that help us to um, to keep track of. Um, keep track of the actual admin of the jobs, but also we have, you know, we have people who are liaising with those guys day in, day out, trying to keep them, um, or keeping them, you know, working the way we want them to work, yeah.
0: So keeping control and all that sort of stuff, a big part of that is about having like a single rental software or ERP that, that the different branches are logging into. So do the agents also have access to your centralized Rental software.
1: Yeah, they, they get access to our um, hire admin system, and um, but mo- all the um, all the uh, invoicing and that and all that sort of thing and um, rehires and all that are done through head office. So um, basically, they they again they as previous their main role is to find work and do the operational side of getting it onto site. Yeah, in their local area. And we do most of the admin and marketing for them.
0: It really sounds like being an agent is is a really good opportunity for somebody that doesn't have the cash flow to start their own hire business, but that can, can be part of that organization and, and they have control over someone that is somewhat their business in a way. So like, what does a typical agent look like?
1: Generally, um, a lot of them are people who have a sort of an ancillary business, maybe scaffolding or something like that. Um, and so it bolts on to what they're doing already. Um, they're dealing with the right customer base and um, and that sort of thing. Um, sometimes it's a bloke who uh, has had a business, but is just sick of the grind of chasing money and things like that from customers. He, and they, you know, some guys uh, enjoy the trade side of it without, um, Doing the admin side. But what we've found is the best people we found are the ones who have um, some sort of sales um, ability who have um, who can go out and win work. So they need to have the operational side, but they need to be able to yeah, leverage off, off their contacts and you know their customers be able to win work is, is the the hot, the key point, I guess. Um, doing the operational side is is good, but they need to be able to win the work in the first place.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess if I think about temporary fencing myself, two main things jump out at me. So the first one is the amount of fences that might get stolen or damaged and being able to recover those costs when you rent them out to somebody. And then the second part of it is the safety because installing temporary fencings on a construction site, it is dangerous. Like moving them off the trucks and constantly uh, working with the various project managers or whoever might be at the site to to ensure it's set up like so how do you sort of control those two areas
1: yeah so um at the end of major projects or most projects there's always a reckoning about what product is um meant to be there and what product is there when we go to pick it up and what's damaged and all that sort of thing and um that's a constant battle forever having issues um, around yeah, recovering our, our stock or recovering the money to replace the stock that's missing or damaged. That is a challenge, an ongoing challenge and I guess we tried we have tried to implement really good systems um, but um, the, the thing is that we are totally focused on temporary fencing and so our records are good and we, um, we keep them you know we, it's our lifeblood. But for a project manager on a site or, a, you know, a, a, um, an administrator in an office, you know, um, the temporary fencing is just one of a thousand things they're doing. And so um, they don't have the, they're not as invested in the temporary fencing part of it as we are. So even though our records are often, you know, really good, um, you're still getting arguments. Of course, it's a lot different to most equipment rental things where they're, product is serialised and all that sort of thing. Temporary fence panels are not serialised. Um, so um, we rely relying I guess on the, the counts that were done when the install was done. We have photographic evidence. Um, we um, get the customers to sign off on it and all that sort of stuff but um, when push comes to shove at the end of a project sometimes they just don't care <laughs> and they don't want to pay so it's a matter of um, negotiation and I guess you make a value judgment on what that customer's worth to you long-term and um, you work it out that way.
0: And so what about on the safety side?
1: Because we're working on a lot of big projects, we are uh, influenced and guided and instructed by the way those, what those companies require of us, which has forced us to improve our um, processes and um, systems. And so we've got really... I think we've got really good systems now and, and, and um, you know, we basically follow the model that the large construction sites force us. Well, we follow the model that they have, in, you know, enforced upon us, but we use it throughout the business now. So um, so I guess when you're working with people like Lendlease and John Holland CPB and these sort of companies and working on major projects, um, you know, Metro Tunnels and Westgate Tunnels and all those sort of things where, um, you know, and Cross River Rail and Brisbane and all those sort of big projects. Um, there, you've got to work to the process, and so we've um, we've adopted all those processes back in across our um, all high all higher work now, so that our installers know that if it's the way, if that's the way you work on a on a Lenley site, that's the way you work all the time.
0: Yeah, I can imagine working with those tier ones just allows you to set a standard that you you sort of roll out within your branches and your employees and all your different job sites and stuff like that. So it's, it's definitely a big benefit. So where do you see the equipment rental industry going in the next 10 years and maybe what the landscape of the industry will look like? You imagine
1: at some point, um, I don't know, things are becoming more digital all the time and, you know, Things like that. So you imagine things will change. I'm not probably smart enough to foresee exactly the way it's going to go, but um, the way the world's evolving, there will be change, no doubt, and it'll be around technology, I would suggest, um, smarter equipment. Um, for us, you know, we'd like to, to work on some way of tracking all of our stock, um, even though it's not serialised. That'd be a bonus for us. Yeah, I, I think there's great opportunity with the infrastructure boom and all that sort of thing, but I also think that um, maybe because of the remote working and all that sort of thing, that maybe um, the need for large buildings and more roads and all that sort of thing um, may be reduced over time. Um, yeah, it's, this pandemic's probably um, altered the trajectory of a lot of things, so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out.
0: And if you could go back in time and give your younger self some advice, what would you say?
1: Probably don't worry about what people think so much. Just do what you what you feels right. I guess. Um, you know, you you have ideas, and you you probably should just pursue them and, and go for it. Um, sometimes you know you uh, you look at things and wonder what you know. Yeah. What yeah, a little bit what others will think. But yeah, no, I think you you just got to go for it. You know, if you've got an idea, have a crack at it. Just have confidence to have a go and stuff.
0: And as that confidence grew over the years, you obviously would have learned a lot from other people. So who do you think played maybe a big influence on you from a mentor perspective?
1: Yeah, I wouldn't say I've had one um, ultimate mentor as such, but I certainly learned a lot from... Um, from my brother Martin and from Mark, my other business partner, um, certainly learned a lot from the sales people who have been involved in our business. So um, when we got Phil Heath on and then Ashley Brown and, and those sort of people, just a, it's Martin and Mark and I are not sales-focused people. So when we got sales people involved and Steve Ashton, our CEO, is um, – has got a good, strong sales focus. Um, those sort of people have, have taught us about, uh, mentored us about the the importance of winning the work. I guess we were strong operationally, but the mentoring about how to win, how to, you know, what you have to do to be strong sales, a sales company has been the stuff that's been most important to learn. It's great having your own business, but a lot of the time you only know about your own business. So, you know, I've been 25 years in, in my business and um, uh, you need those outside influences to teach you stuff and educate you and um, you know their, their um, experience with other systems, other methods other products you know um, all that comes together to you've got to learn from that.
0: So how do you define success? and over your career so far, what do you really you see as a defining moment?
1: I'll, I'll, I'll hark back to Jamie Hayter's response to this question. Actually, he said success was having the the time to if you you know if you want to decide on a good day that you're just going to go and do something and and um, you know away from work. I'm not that I'm not at that point yet, unfortunately. I probably um, I would like to be just to go. Yeah, I'm just going to do what I want to do today. So I would definitely see that as a as a mark of success. Probably not. There for me yet, and that's probably a, a probably a bit of a regret of mine, I reckon. And defining moments, um, I think the defining moments, not one particular moment, but when when I travel interstate or I, uh, and you go over to Auckland or somewhere where we've got a branch and you see your product on hire over there, that's um, that's really exciting and sort of feels successful, I suppose.
0: So you mentioned that's a bit of a regret, so. Is that because you don't want to lose touch with the business? Can you just expand on that a little bit more? Yeah,
1: I'm just—I guess I'm just excited about the business and the opportunity, and so I—you um, tend to get caught up in it all the time. You know, there's a lot of other stuff going on, on outside of business with family and friends and stuff and things you'd like to do. So, yeah, um, could have could have taken it a bit easier over the years. Mightn't have been quite as you know might've been more successful, might've spent more time thinking about, you know, enjoying myself, thinking about stuff and thought of better ways to do stuff rather than being bogged down in the detail
0: maybe. Yeah, well, with ideas, it's, I feel like a lot of the times, like even just for me, a lot of my best ideas have happened when I'm relaxed. It's, if you're always stuck, as you said, like in the detail, like how can you sort of take a step back and, and reflect on what you've done. And I feel like so many people come up with these great ideas when they're going for a walk or they're meditating or they're having a shower or whatever it might be. Like it, it is a, a big thing where sometimes taking a step back will put you forward even further.
1: Yeah, that's right. I think, um, you know, at summertime, Christmas time, you have holidays for a f- few weeks and, um, and you relax and you start to think about stuff and, you know, you think yeah, things are going to be, you know, you know, you have ideas and you think about ways you could do it better and that sort of thing. And then after you've been back, at a couple, back into work about a week or two weeks, I call it the merry-go-round. You're just back on the merry-go-round and just stuck in the, the detail of day-to-day stuff, you know. That's, um, yeah, whereas if you can take that all that time to think and just sit back a bit. I think long run, you probably have a better outcome.
0: I agree. Well, Bruce, I really want to thank you for coming on the Rental Journal podcast.
1: No worries. Thank you, mate. I've enjoyed speaking to you.
0: Please share, follow, like the Rental Journal podcast and we'll see everyone in next week's episode.